Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Welcome to another episode of Overcoming Your Emotional Eating. Change is good, I I think. Actually, in today's podcast, I talk about change and the psychology of change, which we so often may not underestimate or don't understand the magnitude of what the stages of change can mean. Take a listen. So hi again and welcome again for another episode here. We've got another Monday night call and another episode of Overcoming uh, coming your way from this. And I'm so excited to be here as always. I tend to oddly or ironically or synchronistically, not quite sure of that word, but pick these topics that when they come up, you guys don't know this, but there's a number of things that go into this call. And one of the things I do is weeks ahead of time, I actually choose the topic for the call or something I'm, unless I, you know, have to put something in last minute, but I choose it a few weeks ahead of time, never really knowing what the path is going to be like, but inevitably so interesting that what I, what I choose is what's coming up. And tonight, as many of us are going through this process right now, um, of, moving into more and more change. I actually am going to talk tonight about the psychology of change. I know many of you are in facets of change, maybe with yourself, uh, maybe with your life, maybe with your relationship with your body or your food or your weight, maybe just, you know, eating different things is where your change is, or maybe it's something deeper, something more about your relationship with your body or your food. When we look at how we eat, how we feel about our food, our habits, behaviors, and our relationship with food, we know that change is inevitable if we have something that's awry um, with our relationship with food or our relationship with our body um, or our weight or how we eat. And I also know Pivotally, that we're all in this magnanimous time of change in what's happening as a country with respect to COVID and the virus. And if you have children, what their schooling looks like. I just went through my first day of of online schooling for my two high schoolers running back and forth between rooms trying to figure out big blue button and team meetings and what all of that looked like for them. I I took the day off so that I could help them adjust today to being at home. And when we look at the psychology of change, you know, there's so many facets in our life. Obviously on these specific calls, I talk much more about food and eating and our relationship. And I will really dedicate this call to that. But I like for you to really be able to have this content that I bring so you can think about all aspects as I was today, um, actually diving in to, you know, write and rewrite 
um, some bullet points down I wanted to speak about tonight. Because the psychology of change is so amazing. I actually forget how in-depth the psychology of change can get. And it's imperative to understand about yourself, where you are in the change curve, you know, what, what that's like for you with specific things. I remember when I was an intern at Vanderbilt University Medical Center a long time ago. <laughs> um, you see, as a dietitian, you have to go on and do an internship for anywhere from 10 to 12 months for most programs. And so I, I interned and got accepted at Vanderbilt. And, um, but that was a long time ago. And I remember going into people's hospital rooms and we were, were required to teach them nutrition. Um, I had already been at that point in time, I did my professional career uh, uh, education wise a little bit backwards. I did my undergrad and then my graduate degree. And I worked um, with a number of great um, nutrition therapists during my graduate work that were working with eating disordered and disordered eating patterns. So I'd already had kind of this private practice setting where I was uh, knowing about psychology of change and stages of change and was able to go along the client's parameter and their spectrum. In the hospital, it's not so. And understandably, you have to do some things in the hospital because you know they're going to get discharged. So I can remember vividly one client who had just been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Um, it was a teenager and then they had their parents around them and it was a very emotional room um, when I walked in. Uh, the parents wanting the information but the, the adolescent really grappling with this diagnosis and from a psychology of change or a change curve model it was a very difficult thing to walk through. In fact, I remember talking briefly with them, but more so just decided to fail. <laughs> you see, we got graded on how well we educated um, clients and we would get marked uh, accordingly if we hit specific things in that education parameter of what we needed to go through for specific patients, this one with a diabetic patient. Um, you know, had to hit certain things and talk about carbohydrates, et cetera. And I remember looking at my preceptor and just saying, I can't, I can't do this. I can't give this education. She's, she is so in denial right now and grief. I can't, I just can't do it. And she said, well, you have a choice. You can do it and, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, you can pass or you cannot do it. I have to fail you though, but I understand what you're saying. And I said, well, I'll, I'll fail. And I sat with that family and I listened to them and I heard them and I failed that assignment um, with an understanding from my preceptor of why I failed that. And I remember just giving them a lot of handouts to take home and then more than anything, just setting them up with an outpatient dietitian in the area because I felt like they needed more time to assess their psychology related to this magnanimous diagnosis of change. For my clients with anorexia, I knew what it meant in private practice or bulimia where I had to, in the first few sessions, really get a sense of where they were on the change curve. And I'll explain what that is in just a second because that enabled me to really develop 
what I call their treatment plan, was it just about developing trust and allowing that denial to start to subside? Or was it hardcore intervention where they were ready and willing and, and they wanted to jump on change? It was my job to assess that. For the client I, I spoke about last week who didn't understand what her weight was and got on the scale and then had this kind of shattering of her denial. You know, that for me, I had to sit back in that psychology of change. It was not the time for me to start to talk about specific things with her food. What it was, it was a time to talk about how that was to be in her denial and then what was she feeling as that denial shattered. So one of the greatest things I've found that can really help you create change is just what I did with my clients. Begin to identify which stage of change are you in and also recognizing that the stages of change cycle. So you might move from one stage to the other to the other with a specific pattern and then something comes up in life and you cycle back. And if you recognize that, you'll move through those change curve a whole lot quicker. It's really interesting. And I'll talk tonight about a couple of different ways you can look at your own change curve and what that's like. Change is a cycle, and we are at a different spoke on the wheel at different times. Identifying where you are on that wheel will help you further turn that wheel forward. Here's what we know about the change curve that was actually developed by Kubler-Ross. Kubler-Ross said the change curve starts with shock. So surprise or shock at a specific event is what can move somebody into the beginning of a change curve. But that's the first parameter. Second would be denial. So this is where someone's in disbelief and looking for evidence that it's not true. Now, I've worked with many clients, and I've seen shock and denial and the third, frustration, all go hand in hand sometimes. So again, don't look at it as, okay, I go from this to this to this. It's the same thing with what happens in grief. There isn't a, I feel this, then I go to this, then I do that. Because even each of us are radically different. But denial will be that disbelief and looking for evidence that it isn't true. So that may be in your weight. It might be in your relationship with food. And that can, in fact, then lead to frustration, which is the third element on the Kubler-Ross change curve. And that's recognizing that things are different, that you need to change. That frustration comes in where there's that voice, what Oprah Winfrey calls the whisper, where you actually start to hear that whisper. In shock and denial, there's no whisper. There, you know, you might as well hit you up, upside the head with something <laughs> and you don't hear it. But in frustration, it's where you start to hear the whispers of it's time to change. I need to do this. I need to change. Here's the mounting evidence. And sometimes there's anger that comes with that. I don't want to change. I have no desire to do this. Why am I doing this? Yeah. I mean, I know that my, my children over the last couple of days were in frustration. Why do we have to school at home? I don't understand this, right? 
after frustration, for some people can come a low mood or depression. And that's that integration. I don't look at depression or a low mood as a bad thing. I think it's where we're starting to really hear those whispers and accept them. For some people, it doesn't move all the way down into depression, but it just might be what I would call acceptance. So I, I know Kubler-Ross uses depression, and I want to stay along his, their change curve, but I want you to understand I sometimes for clients will see that as acceptance. But sometimes in that acceptance, it can feel overwhelming or daunting. Oh, gosh, I am here. I don't really want to be here. And I don't really know how I'm going to get out. And so I don't always see that the lowest mood of depression, but I can see that acceptance in there, creating a lower energy pattern for some people. Kubler-Ross then moves on to experimentation. And this is where there's an initial engagement of change. It might be one of you all initially hopping on this call. Huh, they said it might be a decent call. Why don't I try it? Or, hmm, maybe I should try to eat different for a day and see what that's like. Just that initial experimentation and engagement with a new situation is how we start to see some motivation begin to happen. Now, in any place along this continuum, you can get stuck, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. The next will be a decision. After experimentation, then there's a decision of learning how to work in this new situation. This is kind of where people feel more positive. Okay, I am going to do this. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to make this commitment to do this change in this way. And finally, Kubler-Ross says his final change curve uh, parameter is integration. And that's changes are integrated and the individual becomes renewed. And this is where we see alignment created. We see an understanding that can happen within the individual, applying new skills, right? Um, and then a commitment and a new focus can come after that. Now, there's a whole lot of things that can happen. I talk about those in just step by step by step. But I'll tell you from shock, to disbelief, there can be denial, and then there can be resistance and some anger. And then that can move into some self-doubt when people begin to become aware of their new reality, whatever that is. There may be some insecurity. There may be some blame and shame. That says you're moving along that parameter kind of down that, down that corridor. And it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to develop these calls and wanted there to be a safe place for people to come to learn new information. Because as people became aware and become aware of their own reality, where they are, what that's like, as that shock and denial and disbelief begins to subside or ebb out, that awareness of reality, that insecurity and blame and self-doubt, and sometimes that lower energy of acceptance can move into depression. I find that the more we fill our cup, so to speak, with new information, knowledge, and understanding, the more likely we are to move into letting go, learning new skills, moving into exploration and understanding kind of out the other side of this reverse bell curve. We know that there is a pre-contemplative stage, you know, where people are in that denial of their shock. They're just kind of, kind of looking at it. It's, you know, not in that moment, it's not that we can't see the solution, 
It may actually even be that we can't see the problem. So in that denial or that you know, beginning stage where you're just really pre-contemplating, you're not even contemplating it, there's a resistance there, just kind of thinking about it. And sometimes, though, in that pre-contemplation, people can feel hopeless, which is why I want to de develop these calls so that there wasn't that out there. For, for some of you, you may be in a, in a total movement of change and integration pattern on the other side of the, the opposite bell curve. But for some of you, it may not be so with certain patterns that you have. And so it's important to recognize that where you are. And I always want to develop an element of, of catching or a support system. We know after pre-contemplation that we move into contemplation. That's where we're thinking about changing. What does that look like? What does that mean for me? How do I do that? I'm not so sure, right? You might know your destination, but you may not be ready to go. It's kind of like where you're looking at things, but you're not ready to jump. In the preparation stage, now that's where people are ready, right? They're prepared, taking action, and ready to, to move, which then moves you into the action stage in preparation, and then finally into the maintenance stage, which is where I talked about more integration. And that then can move people into what we call graduation, so to speak, which is where the behaviors, the things that you've learned, they become a norm and you leave the old behaviors. It's interesting that people so often try to change what they eat, as just like they change their socks. And when you really get down to it, there is a whole lot more to the psychology of change than anybody gives themselves credit for. There's a lot behind this. It doesn't mean that change has to be hard. It just means that you've got to know yourself better because then change is easier. Besides knowing the stage and where you are in change, which as I said at the beginning is really empowering to totally understand where you are in the stage. Because if not, you're fighting an uphill battle. I mean, I've worked with so many clients, whether it be on, on weight loss or, or overeating patterns or anorexia or bulimia, who literally, like their parents, had them by their hands, walked them into my office, and this might be a 15-year-old, so I'm not talking about a four-year-old, and, and sat them down in my chair and said, now, she has a problem with her eating. you got to fix her. And the daughter or the son was like, I, I don't want to do this. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. So the truth about that is, is my first parameter with that client always was, okay, I get the stage of change you're in. Why don't we talk about that first and what's that like, that your parents are totally in action stage and you are in denial. Wow, what a difference on the curve parameter you guys are. Let's talk about that. So that became very empowering for clients, and it can be really empowering for you. But there's a few other things you can do to empower yourself around the psychology of change. Number one, evaluate your level of control. Sometimes it's really easy to become fixated on events that you have no control or no power over. 
What you want to really begin to do is focus not on blaming others, but focus on what you can take responsibility for. For example, if you're going over a friend's house to have dinner or maybe a barbecue outside, then maybe if you need to and you know there's food there that you're going to have problems with, then maybe you need to bring your own and take that responsibility for yourself, your actions, and your health, right? So how can you do that? The other, second, is practice self-care. Now, the psychology of change, this is what's interesting, is rarely talked about. But what's even more not talked about is when you get to that integration, graduation phase. I've had many clients with anorexia, gain weight, with emotional overeating or compulsive overeating, lose weight. Now, it's interesting when I continue to work with those clients, there's emotions that come up because of the change that occurred. And even though there's a great change, I mean, we might look at that and go, that was great, you really needed to lose weight or you really need to gain weight, there is a loss for some people. It does change certain relationships with spouses, friends, partners, and that can bring up grief. Change inevitably can change how we are in our support systems, our love, our encouragement. And so it's important to practice self-care even after the change has happened so you can really keep in touch with where you are on this parameter and what it means for you. Number three, make sure you check your thought patterns. What I mean by that, you know, in times of change, it's really easy for your mind to cut corners. So you might start to see everything in black and white. When you move into that action, sometimes the brain's just like, oh, I got to get there, I got to get there, I got to get there. But be very careful because when you're moving that fast, you miss things like mindfulness, deep breathing, relaxation. You miss thought patterns that are beginning to come up. And so what can happen then is that can create what we might call a relapse, either in pattern, habit, or emotional resilience. So it's imperative that you continue to check your thought patterns even as you move through the psychology of change. Make sure that you're present with yourself, with other people, so that you can pay attention to how your body's responding to stress, setting aside time every day to relax, we underestimate the value of self-care in weight loss and changing our relationship with food. Even addiction, you know, I know it's talked about some more in alcoholism or uh, drug addiction as people are moving into recovery, that there is some talk of self-care. But in my opinion, it's undervalued when it comes to food. It's not talked about. It's imperative when you're trying to change that you take care of you because as we know change can bring up a number of emotions if you're taking care of yourself and you're slowing down you're taking some deep breaths during the time of change you can really keep yourself grounded and connected to yourself so that you can come out the other side of this change even better and finally find your priorities the most resilient people see change as an opportunity rather than a monster of fear. Transitions in your life will actually allow you to consider where your priorities lie. 
So where is that priority? What is it around? Right? Where what's going to give you the biggest bang for your buck, as I would say, or the best, most energy, the most clear sense of mind and goals. Prioritizing your health in these transitional times is imperative. And so what's going to get you healthy mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally? We know all of this to be true. And so, you know, we know that humans are social creatures by nature. So you weren't built to withstand every sudden event in life without the support of others. I believe that to be true quite clearly when it comes to changing our relationship with our food. I know and have known for years as I've run many different groups, whether it be a, you know, me one-on-one with a client, which became our own very small group, or very large groups or public speaking engagements, that when I have run things in groups, I know that the group together was better than one. When I used to run groups relentlessly, we saw people heal much better. That's why when we first began, it was imperative that I start a group call. And here we still are today. It was why it was imperative we turn these calls into podcasts at times so that others can actually gain knowledge and feel the support of a group from an external parameter. Healing together enables us to form an amazing collaboration of ourselves, together uniting to understand each other, and most importantly, understanding ourselves. Understanding the psychology of change will help you understand more about yourself, where you are in the process, and what will help you stay in the change. We heal through and with each other to heal ourselves from within. That, in fact, is why I wanted to do this call tonight on the psychology of change in this time where we are constantly changing. And for those of you that have also risen up to change your relationship with food during this time as well. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend, rate, review, and subscribe. You never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.